Chapter Eight of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter Eight, eighteen ninety-eight to nineteen o two, Lethbridge and Macleod. At Macleod, I had to live in the buildings known as the Officers' Mess House which happened to be bare of occupants, as all the MacLeod's officers were married. It was a comfortless, barn-like place, but I had to make the best of it, and was fortunate in being able to secure, as a special constable, a Chinaman of middle age, named Ling, who was quite a good cook, and very faithful and attentive to my wants. Particularly so, after I had, in one of my cold, blizzardy drives, picked up a bad attack of bronchitis, and was obliged to spend my weekend at Macleod instead of in my comfortable home. Trains were running, but I had not time to go by train whenever it was possible to avoid it. My teams called at my door at five minutes to the hour, and as the clock struck, the sleigh bells began to jingle, and we were off. I knew that within four hours I should reach my destination, but with a train one might waste an appreciable slice of one's life in waiting about stations for overdue trains and the like. With a white mantle of snow covering the ground and no trail visible, we had to be guided by distant landmarks. If they happened to be obscured, a compass came in handy. Of the bronchitis that I acquired in that winter of 1898-9, to recurrences stayed with me, fitfully to my great annoyance, for a period of about twelve years and then I got rid of it for good. And all by a very simple method, which I do not recommend to anyone whose bellows are not sound. I used at odd times, preferably in the winter, or when a cold wind was blowing, to take a long, deep breath, give it time to distribute itself in the lungs where it could be felt, hold it there until the coolness had worn off, and then let it quietly emerge from mouth and nostrils. By the inhalation of the cold air in this process, I unwittingly cured a weakness in the throat, which had at times, as Dr. Newburn knows, given me trouble. Ling remained with me until one fine day in the spring. He awoke me early and said he had terrible pains in his inward parts and would have to leave at once. The greater part of his life had been spent at sea, and I had an idea that the ocean was calling him. He had answered my purpose well and I made no objection. It was not difficult to replace him, as the work was easy and the pay good. But I was not quite so complacent subsequently in the case of a namesake of his, a young man whom I engaged for my family at Lethbridge. The worst feature of a Chinaman was that they would suddenly say that they wanted to leave. Quit, they called it, and off they would go at a minute's notice. This was generally after their month's wages had been paid. One afternoon I was in my Lethbridge office and got a rush message from my house, which was only a few yards away. Ling says he is going to quit right away. Can you come? I was very much absorbed in a troublesome case, and it made me as mad as a wet hen to have my attention diverted, but the least said is soonest mended, and in I went to my kitchen. Well, Ling, you quit, eh? All light. A Chinaman pronounces his R's like L. All light. Goodbye. You get no money. 
Goodbye. You know Corporal Louis? I tell him to wait for you in town. He bling you up to guard loom. Goodbye. And back to my work I went. I found, when I went in to dinner, that Ling had thought better of it. Corporal Louis, as the Chinaman called him, was Corporal Lewis, on town duty, who was a terror to the evildoer, and I phoned him instructions, in case Ling should quit, to lay before a town J.P. complaint under the master and servant ordinance against him for absenting himself from his employment without leave, and to act accordingly. One of the functions at MacLeod was an annual powwow with the chief and representative head man of the Blood Indians. The Indians of the Canadian Northwest had a childlike faith in the honesty of purpose and sense of justice of the mounted police, who had never deceived them, and had always looked after the Indians' interests and upheld them as well as they could. The Indians were in charge of a department of the government known as the Indian Department, which had sole and whole control of these wards of the nation and their affairs. The Indians had the mounted police always with them, but the self-assertive officials of the Indian Department they had not always. They had their local agents, of course, who were supreme, subject to the orders from the Department, and were left no sort of discretion where dollars and cents were concerned. Poor devils, they had a hard row to hoe. Their armchair critics would come round and cut off a little bit here and a morsel there, until the poor local men, who had to do the actual economizing with aborigines, of whose language they were very imperfectly informed, did not know what they were at. And then the redskins used to come to us to find out the why and the wherefore. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, the politician or employee whose intellect is devoted to problems of economy will always gain a substantial hearing and generally make his way. Economy is such a catchword that efficiency or even convenience of the public is a minor consideration. One such severe economist retired from the Indian Department when the Liberals came into power in 1896 and was elected secretary of a Montreal club. I was in the company of a member of that club somewhere in western Canada when the announcement of the appointment was made in the papers and after reading it, my friend closed up the paper and said, That means three pieces of toast instead of four for breakfast. The same severe spirit of economy manifested itself in 1908, wherein I became sixty years of age and married a second wife, the dear mother of my children, having died in 1906. In the course of a modest little honeymoon, we made our first stop at Banff in the Rocky Mountains, where the Canadian Pacific as a very pretentious hotel. Our accommodation had been bespoken beforehand, so that we had no difficulty in that respect, but the place was swarming with German Jews and other tourists, and at dinner on the evening of our arrival I ordered some sherry. Two glasses were brought to us, and I at once disposed of mine. My wife, however, took only a sip of hers, and after a little while I noticed that her glass contained a good deal of sediment which had settled to the bottom. I pointed this out to her and sent for the head waiter, who was shocked beyond measure at the occurrence. He carried off the glass, saying that he would look into this and would bring us some more, but time went on, and he did not reappear. We went on with our dinner, 
and presently I coaxed a waiter into coming to me for a parley, and he, after considerable hesitation, said, Well, sir, that was the last bottle of sherry in the house, and you had the end of it. But, with an anxious glance around, don't give me away. I will not, I replied. Thank you for telling me. The head waiter did not enter the dining room again that evening while I was in it, and I forgave him. Later at Lake Louise, west of Banff, we could not get any lager beer. The best substitute the waiter could give us was pints of stout, and we had therewith to be content. It is almost unthinkable, from a business money-making point of view, that a very large hotel system stretching across a continent should run even a risk of being reduced to such straits as I have described. But such are the effects of the spirit of economy when placed in the hands of its devotees. In The Crooked Lakes Affair, herein described, page 140, the selfsame economy was brought face to face with ultima ratio. The management of the CPR system became aware of these shortcomings on the part of their staff, as I judged from a visit paid shortly after our return to our home at Calgary by an old Regina friend of mine who was in the CPR hotel business, dropping in to see me unexpectedly. At the time of his visit to me, he was supposed, to some extent, to control the liquor supply of the hotel system, and I knew quite well that he had casually dropped in to see if I had anything to say on the subject. I, however, never said a word. I did not choose to backbite an unhappy manager when I shrewdly suspected that he was very little to blame. I seemed to have wandered away somehow from the Blood Indians and their powwow. Their chief at that time was Red Crow, a fine old fellow, who said that the faith of his fathers was good enough for him, and who lived up to it. There was no forked tongue about old Red Crow, who realized that the mounted police always played the game, and frankly came to them to say what was on his mind. On the occasion of which I now write, he and his following came to talk about the Sundance, which the Indian Department had prohibited. I may say here that I had a very strong objection to this dance, which, having once seen in the early days, I never wanted to see again. It was a brutal and senseless proceeding from a white man's point of view. I saw a large ring enclosed, and partly covered by boughs of trees and the like, in the centre of which was a tall pole, from the crest thereof, depended a number of ropes, according to the number of debutantes. Each debutante was secured to the end of his rope by a skewer passed laterally through the flesh of each breast, and it developed upon him to dance at full pressure round this pole until he fainted from exhaustion, or until the continuous strain should compel the flesh of his breast to tear open and set him free. This process constituted the making of a brave, the unhappy brave, had a whistle or something of the kind put into his mouth, and round that pole the wretched creature jumped sideways, as in a giant's stride, always at full tension, until, I have said, his flesh or his endurance gave out. The audience consisted of a circle of closely packed natives, with voice and tom-toms encouraging the representative to hold out to the end. This went on for hours, while the poor victims were struggling with pain, and with their painted faces were blowing their whistles and trying to show that they were putting some heart into their performance. 
Then the braves, who had successfully passed through the ordeal in former years, would be recounting their stories of successful horse-thieving and scalp-taking expeditions, and would exhibit, all to the sound of the tom-tom, their search for and finding of the enemy's trail, the stealthy advance, the crash of the tomahawk into the victim, and then the triumphant war-whoop. All such exhibitions as this could only have the effect of keeping alive the primeval, homicidal, and criminal instincts of the native, and my sympathies were wholly with the endeavours of the Indian department, but I never allowed my sympathies to show themselves. However, old Red Crow made a long speech to set forth the views of his followers, and here it was very helpful to have an interpreter like Harry Taylor, who could interpret finer shades of thought than could the ordinary man. My office at MacLeod was unusually large, and with all the windows open, could accommodate quite a number of Indian visitors sitting cross-legged on the floor. When the old chap had done, he subsided into an office armchair, and within two minutes was sound asleep. The burden of his song was that the Bloods wanted to have a sun-dance, which was forbidden to them by the Indian department. He represented that the dance was a part of the Indians' religious belief and was to them, as my interpreter explained, in some sort a sacrament. That was the sum total of the representations made by a great number of Indian orators who spread themselves during a long summer afternoon. In reply, apart from a long preamble and eulogistic comments upon the habits of the Indians generally, in my district, I could only ask the question, when the Indian department says no, how is it possible for a humble individual of the mounted police like myself to say yes? Old Red Crow had by this time been awakened by his attendant squaws, and admitted that that was a difficulty which seemed to be insuperable. We all parted the best of friends, and an issue of tea and tobacco cemented the compact. In September 1898, I thought I was entitled to a holiday, seeing that I had not had one since my appointment in 1883. And I took my family to Victoria, B.C. for a month. The Canadian Pacific had always treated us liberally in the matter of travel and gave us free transportation to and fro. In visiting a place some 800 miles distant, this was a very substantial concession. Our old friends, the Dudneys, were living in Victoria. He had served a term of five years as lieutenant governor of the province of British Columbia, after giving up the portfolio of the Ministry of the Interior, and at his house we met Admiral Palliser, who was then in command of the Pacific Station. His flag captain happened to be Captain T. Adair, an old shipmate of mine, who was a sub-lieutenant in the Warrior when I joined her in May 1869. Since that year I had never come across him. While on the subject of HMS Warrior, I may here say that I had the honour of being a shipmate also of the illustrious Field Marshal who commanded the British Army in the early stages of the war. I have not seen him since the ship paid off in 1871. He was a midshipman in her. In 1910, Sir John French came to Calgary to inspect the militia during the month of June, and that happened to be the very month that I had selected to spend on the Pacific coast, and I was not, therefore, privileged to see him. I left a note for him, offering my own trooper Johnny for his use in riding about the country, 
but he replied that his wants in that respect had been supplied from Winnipeg, and he could not naturally interfere with the arrangements that had been made for his convenience. Admiral Palliser was very kind and hospitable. He invited us to luncheon one day, and sent his galley to the wharf to take us off. We took our seats, and the cosun asked me to take the tiller while he pulled the stroke oar. We had a most enjoyable time, from the first to the last, and to me it was a great treat to be associated again with the inimitable spick-and-span Jack Tar. I was particularly curious to know what my daughter thought of it all, and gave her plenty of time to digest all that she had seen, before I asked her what had impressed her most. "'Oh, father,' she said, hesitatingly, "'I think the men and the boat.' I had an idea that would probably be her reply. We had paid our visit to the coast a month too late in the year, and were all of us glad to be at home again when we resumed the even tenor of our respective ways until the mounted police were invited to volunteer for the Boer War and to form a unit under Mr. Lawrence Herchmer. Officers and men volunteered freely. For myself, I officially reported that I was ashamed of not having joined the ranks, but that, as I had joined the Queen's service a year earlier than Sir Edward Hutton, the general commanding the Canadian forces, and had commanded a company of Royal Marines in the Naval Brigade under Commodore Hewitt, V.C., in Ashanti, in 1874, I did not feel called upon to serve with the relative rank of captain in the Canadian militia. This was the reason I gave officially, but, apart from that, it was to me unthinkable that I should go on active service under a man whom I considered to be unfit for the responsibility he was seeking, and so I stayed home. A very short interval in South Africa was sufficient to prove the truth of my contention, and Lieutenant Colonel Herchmer was quietly laid on the shelf. On his return to Canada, he found that his subordinate had served him in the same manner that he had Colonel Irvine, and had gained the commissionership of the mounted police by the exercise of political influence. I had no sympathy to spare for Lieutenant Colonel Herchmer, who had camped on my trail for many a long year, and I can dismiss him from my reflections, with the assertion that if his doing so had amused him, it had not hurt me. The completion of the Crow's Nest Railway relieved me of my British Columbia responsibilities, and it was well that it was so, for I had plenty to do near home. I filled up the blanks in my command as much as possible by means of recruits, but these men had to be trained, and I had no one but myself to take the riding school at each post, so that I had few idle moments. In addition to this, I formulated a new system of crime reports which was badly needed by the force at large. I did this at Mr. Commissioner Perry's request, and copies of my specimen reports were circulated for the guidance of officers commanding other divisions. This system has been in vogue ever since. A spell of bad weather was responsible for an untoward contretemps when the Governor-General and Lady Minto came west. They had been invited by Mr. Elliot Galt, president of the coal company, to pay him a visit and to go out to a new settlement named Magrath, about twenty-two miles from Lethbridge. It was settled by Mormons, who had announced their intention of making the country blossom like the rose. Their excellencies were coming to us from the Pacific coast, and Mr. Commissioner Perry and I met their train at Fernie, which had been known as Coal Creek, when I had spent the night or two there in the tote-road days. 
The new name was given to it after that of the original settler. Our first objective was Lethbridge, where rain was threatening. The program for the morrow was this. Eighteen miles out from Lethbridge, on the southbound railway, was the village of Stirling, which was the name of its first Mormon bishop, and there we had placed a temporary camp of half a dozen men, with saddle-horses for the family, and suite of vice-regal party, who might wish to ride, and light spring wagons for the convenience of others. It came on to rain heavily that night, and the next morning was so wet that I went to ask Mr. Galt what the program was to be. He replied, Oh, I think you'll find they'll go, and so it was. We all took the special train, which had been provided as far as Stirling, and there we naturally found everything sopping wet. It only remained to pack the ladies into a spring wagon, with oil sheets, etc., the gentleman elected to ride, and we galloped over the twenty-mile prairie road to McGrath. We duly arrived at our destination in good spirits, and with good appetites, but a little later than we had intended. It was therefore somewhat disconcerting to find that the McGrath people had come to the conclusion that even English men and women would not be crazy enough to travel in such weather, and had eaten the luncheon provided for their guests. Their excellencies, as might be expected of English nobility, took the whole matter so good-naturedly and unconcernedly that the situation was in no way uncomfortable. It was not long, however, before a very nice, satisfying midday meal was served to make up for our long fast. In the unsatisfactory state of the weather, there was little else to be done but to talk and speechify, and that came quite easy to Mormon apostles, so that as soon as the weather cleared a little, we started on our twenty-two-mile run to Lethbridge. We had ahead of us a similar jaunt on the following day to the blood reserve from MacLeod, and to facilitate this operation, we loaded our horses into a box-car and attached it to the vice-regal train. We then went out to the blood reserve, and had luncheon, and saw what was to be seen, being guest there of Mr. W. Wilson, the Indian agent. Lady Minto told the Indians that she was descended from a famous Indian princess, Pocahontas. They were not at all impressed by the circumstance, and as a matter of fact did not believe the story. An Indian is loath to believe what he cannot see. In the early days a bunch of them came to Regina, Colonel Irvine left Red Crow, and some of them with me in my office, and took Crowfoot and the rest to his quarters. Then we set them talking to one another over the telephone, and their delight was great. But when they went home to their reserve, and told their kith and kin of their experience, they frankly thought that the travellers were telling them lies. On returning to MacLeod, Her Excellency was kind enough to ask me to join their family party at dinner in their car and that was the last time I saw Lord Minto, whose visits were always welcome. He did pay a later visit to the northwest for some duck-shooting, but did not then come into southern Alberta. Being Governor-General of the Dominion, he quietly effaced himself when their Royal Highnesses, the Duke and Duchess of York, visited the country. We then gathered up from all surrounding districts a force of about 250 officers and men, formed them into a camp at Calgary, and had the honour of being there, reviewed by the heir to the British crown. After the review, the royal party went to a hill adjoining the city, where a large number of Blackfleet and other Indians were encamped. 
mounted braves, in all the extravagances of their native costume, lined the road of approach on either side for about a mile, and at the summit their chiefs and headmen, under the aegis of the Indian department, were permitted to see and speak to their future king. This ceremony being completed, their royal highnesses and suite took luncheon at the barracks as guests of the officers of the mounted police. The mess-room of E-Division was a capacious and handy room for the purpose, and the walls were decorated with a large number of well-preserved animals' heads, which had been lent to us for the purpose by owners scattered over a great extent of territory. His Royal Highness was observed to take particular notice of these heads with the eye of a sportsman. The officers had all been presented to their Royal Highnesses before luncheon, and after that function a smart travelling escort under command of the late inspector, Montague Baker, conducted the royal visitors to their train. We had already entrained an escort for duty on the Pacific coast, and of this, as being by many years senior superintendent of the force, it was my birthright to go in command. But I had got mixed up with a criminal prosecution in Montana, which was to be tried in Great Falls within a few days, and as it was necessary that I should attend the trial, I was perforce compelled to abandon the trip to the coast. Soon after the occurrences just described, His Royal Highness was graciously pleased to ordain that the force should be known as the Royal Northwest Mounted Police. The necessity for my attendance at Great Falls had occurred in this wise. A Swedish settler in southern Alberta had had twenty-seven head of horses stolen from him by an American citizen and i had for months been engaged in working up the case so as to bring the thief and his coadjutors to justice this could easily be done as a state law was in force in montana making it felonious to take into that state property which had been stolen in another country the montana authorities and i used to work this to our mutual advantage as we had a similar law on our side the twenty-seven horses had been stolen in Canada and taken into Montana, where they had all been disposed of to different customers. The United States Collector of Customs at that time was Mr. David Brown, to whom I am under obligation for many international courtesies. And he and his chief deputy, Mr. Ernest Ringwald, were at all times anxious to help me to keep our mutual frontier free from crooks of all kinds. They took up this horse-thieving instance with great earnestness. They found out where the thief had disposed of each animal, and had obtained a promise from each purchaser that, if necessary, he would give up his property to the original owner. There could be no greater expression of goodwill than such a course as this, and it was obviously my duty to live up to it. These attentions, be it observed, were mainly of a personal and reciprocal nature, and had been of prolonged and steady growth. My sweetest friend was a capable, hard-working man, who had a wife as hard-working as himself. The government paid his expenses to Great Falls, and I duly accompanied him there. I was in dread, lest he should not keep sober enough to appear as a witness, but he gave excellent evidence at the trial. What seemed to impress the jury a good deal was what a reporter called his audible thinking. He began by holding up his left hand and by ticking it off finger by finger with appropriate commentaries as each horse floated past his mind's eye, 
and then he resorted to the other hand, and so on, obviously in dead earnest, and thinking out each item with childlike simplicity. The judge, good judge too, charged the jury very shortly, and they retired to consider their verdict and sentence. I learned then, for the first time, that in case of conviction, the jury had the right to assess the punishment, if it was their will to exercise that right. This jury brought in a verdict of guilty and a sentence of ten years in the penitentiary. I had, when the jury retired, gone out into the street to have a cigarette, and had lighted a second one when a newspaper reporter passed me with a rush, gasping as he went, Prisoner committed suicide. It transpired that, after the jury had fulfilled their part of the program, the prisoner had asked to be taken to the lavatory. While there, he swallowed a pellet of cyanide of potassium, which he was said to have kept in his waistcoat pocket, and then told his guard what he had done. The resources of medical science were, of course, immediately available, and were successfully applied. The prisoner, however, happened to have a foster father who was unusually well-to-do, and who was very much wrapped up in the boy whom he had adopted. He left no stone unturned to obtain the young man's release, and succeeded after he had undergone four years at the penitentiary. Not long after these occurrences, I undertook the prosecution of a case of wholesale cattle smuggling, the particulars of which are fully described in the chapter under that heading. As a result of my successful engineering of a round-up party, terminating in the capture of 596 head of cattle, smuggled into Canada by bosom friends of an influential member of the Dominion Cabinet, I was ordered to be transferred to Maple Creek, a very small municipality in the province, then known as Assiniboia, but since then rechristened Saskatchewan. A prominent member of the Lethbridge Liberal Association came to ask me the question, Can't you do something to stop this? meaning the move. I said, I should prefer that you do not interfere. The minister in question was then in the plenitude of his power, and did as he liked, but there came a day, a year or so later, when he was hurled from his seat by an expose in the Calgary eye-opener, and took refuge in the tall timber. The end of it all was that my wife and I transferred ourselves, our lairs and pennants, to Maple Creek, where it happened that our eldest son was successfully practicing medicine. We were Darby and Joan, so to speak, for our two daughters were happily married, and of our other two sons, one was dying of consumption in California, and one was in the Bank of Montreal in British Columbia. The people of Lethbridge gave effect to their sentiments in the following resolution, in an illuminated form, which unexpectedly reached me soon after I had established myself in my new post. 2. Captain R. B. Dean, Superintendent, Northwest Mounted Police. The Lethbridge Town Council and Board of Trade, representing the town of Lethbridge and surrounding district, sincerely regret your recent removal from this district. You have had charge of all the police matters in the large territory adjoining the Montana boundary for the past 14 years, practically since Lethbridge came into existence. For several years your department has almost annually disturbed us with threatening rumors of your removal to other points of the Northwest, and on each occasion every effort at our command was put forth to retain you.
the government of a country is much stronger than a small portion of that country, and recognizing that truth on this last occasion, when you were called away, we decided to lodge our usual protest and then quietly submit. The Northwest Mounted Police Force is a credit to Canada, and in our opinion that force is deeply indebted to you, as wherever you are stationed, law and order will be firmly established and the police respected. It is unnecessary to recount your services to this district. Being a soldier and a gentleman, you did your duty. We know you always performed it with honour to your country and credit to yourself. Your work has not been in vain. The universal regret throughout the district occasioned by your departure is evident of the esteem and respect in which you are held by the general public. And after so many years of service, it is certainly indicative of a record of which any public man should be proud. Please assure your estimable wife that she has carried away the deepest regard of our people, and we trust you will both look back with pleasure upon your many years' residence in Lethbridge. We ask you to accept the accompanying present as a slight token of the warm appreciation that prevails throughout the district for Mrs. Dean and yourself. Dated at Lethbridge in the District of Alberta, this 15th day of October, 1902. The Municipality of the Town of Lethbridge, S.D. William Oliver, Mayor, S.D. C.B. Bowman, Secretary-Treasurer. The Lethbridge and District Board of Trade, S.D. M. Barford, President, S.D. C.B. Bowman, Secretary-Treasurer. The accompanying present consisted of a handsome gold watch, chain, and locket. The locket I gave to my wife, the watch and chain I have used ever since. The Western Stock Growers Association was also pleased to send me a memento in the subjoined form. President W. F. Cochran MacLeod First Vice President D. Warmock Livingston Western Stock Growers Association Secretary-Treasurer R. G. Matthews MacLeod Second Vice President Henry Smith High River Office of the Secretary-Treasurer MacLeod, Alberta, 10th October, 1902. Superintendent R.B. Dean, Commander, Northwest Mounted Police, Maple Creek. Dear Sir, at a meeting of the Executive Committee of this Association, held in MacLeod on the 8th instant, the following resolution, a copy of which I was instructed to forward to you, was unanimously adopted, that is, moved by Howell Harris, seconded by A.R. Springett. This committee, recognizing the energy and ability shown by Captain Dean, Northwest Mounted Police, in the discharge of his duties as superintendent of the Lethbridge District, desires to record its appreciation of the services rendered, the livestock interests of southern Alberta. I have much pleasure in carrying out my instructions. Yours very truly, signed R. G. Matthews, Secretary. It is needless for me to say that such remembrances as these cannot fail to be dear to the heart of a public servant. End of chapter 8